0: Well, hello and welcome to your monthly, member-only Ask an Attorney webinar. I'm not the attorney, I'm Kevin Mikulowski, director of media here at USCCA and executive editor of Concealed Carry Magazine and in a really bad mood because I watched the entire Democratic debate last night and they didn't say the word guns one time, so we didn't get to troll anybody on our social media platforms. So, I'm here with Tom Grieve, Noted criminal defense attorney, former state prosecutor, and all-around good guy, and we are here to ask your questions. Kind of iffy on the good it's guy. A little on iffy. The good yeah, I part.
1: mean, I, I get, I get mixed reviews. I sometimes didn't mean on to that. take it over the top like that. That's you know, all right. So. That's all right. I appreciate it.
0: I, I could just go with the standard lawyer jokes, but we don't, we don't want to do that. I know? mean, you know, I
1: feel like we've moved to a different level at this point, and not to say that those aren't, those aren't, you know, unacceptable, because mm-hmm. you know, who doesn't love a good lawyer joke? But you know. So I feel you, like you can hit lower than that. You anyways. might also
0: consider us <laughs> friends or not yet. <laughs> yeah, no, no, oh, good. We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Well, let's get right into it. Vince, <laughs> does your organization have a summary of state... I can say that. State-specific gun laws. We live in Nevada. To be uh, <laughs> fair,
1: on screen, Max wrote that all in Latin. Yeah. And Kevin just did an amazing job of translating that. Sweet. On the fly, folks. Under pressure. See?
0: I... I do good things.
1: (laughs) USCCA.com forward slash laws with an S at the end. I was just talking to Bonnie, who's the fantastic person here on site in beautiful West Bend, Wisconsin, in charge of updating and always adding to it. We were talking about all the amazing things she's got coming down the pipeline. It is a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic resource. And, folks, it's only getting better. And I'm not just saying that. It's it's absolutely true.
0: Yeah, and, and I understand that as well because Bonnie works for me and... This thing just keeps filling up and filling up and I'm getting more and more requests for IT support because we need to make things bigger and faster and stronger. So the short answer, Vince, is yes, we do. So go to uscca.com slash laws and look at everything you need to know right there. So, all right, take, take this next one, Tom.
1: GB asks, what constitutes a deadly weapon? Interesting question. I don't think we've been doing this for some time now. I don't uh, think we've... In fact, is this the one year, is this our, our month 13 now? So we've wow. completed 12, this is episode 13, really. Something's gonna go wrong. Wow, wow. <laughs> Maybe the tech team can get you know the candles yeah. in the background, something like that, I don't mm-hmm. know. But um, what constitutes a deadly weapon? Well, I would say that any weapon that could foreseeably be used or reasonably be used to produce deadly force. And keep in mm-hmm. mind, deadly force need not be someone's shot and they're dead. Deadly force typically means anything that's foreseeably or reasonably could be used to produce death or great bodily harm. That tends to be the definition in most states. What's great bodily harm here? Great bodily harm is when we're talking about protracted loss of limb, loss of organ, um, something that could really severely damage someone. Is that, is that fair? Yeah,
0: and uh, the definition we had to memorize at the police academy is that um, deadly force is the use of a firearm or other instrument, the use of which would cause a high probability of death. That, that was, those were the words that we were required to learn on, on pain of push-ups. And notice that the only thing they name specifically is a firearm. A firearm is always deadly force. So even if you say, I was just trying to shoot him in the leg, too bad, you were using deadly force. That is a deadly weapon. Um, now if you're using a baton or a stick and you hit somebody in the arm, that's not deadly force. If you intentionally hit them in the head, that's deadly force. Might be a different situations.
1: Yeah. So even so, the same items yeah. can contextually yeah. be used differently to produce different outcomes, yep. and therefore and, different classifications.
0: And I, I messed up. Somebody will probably call me out on this. The intentional use of a firearm or other instrument, the use of which would cause a high probability of death, that you have to intentionally be using that. It, you can't, you know, if you say it was an accident, well, then maybe it's not deadly force.
1: Fun fact, we did not have to do push-ups in law school. Really, I just thought I'd throw that out there for all you folks who were wondering.
0: Yeah, push-ups so, yeah. and bear crawls—they're really good on the bear crawls bear across, crawls? across the, the fitness center at the, at the police academy. Hmm. It was, uh, and at my age, bear crawls did, bear it, ca- no, no, not happening. Did, didn't work no. that well. Tex, I like Tex. He wants to know what are the rules of engagement involving the use of deadly force between daylight and nighttime scenarios. So, Tex, are you talking about that little twilight area right in there, or daylight? or nighttime. So um, the big difference is that at night, it's dark.
1: He's a wordsmith, folks.
0: Yeah, I, I know things. So um. <laughs> I, I know.
1: <laughs> Can we get that on the subtitles? Yeah. Like I want to make sure that, that yeah. that's there. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, at the end of the day, the laws do, do not change. However, of course, when somebody could be foreseeably or reasonably able to forecast that that need for deadly force, sure. Obviously, if you can see a threat somewhat differently, but at the end of the day, the laws are not changing. But maybe the facts, as a result of the lighting scenarios, do change.
0: And and understand too, if you're if you're working in darkness, and most crimes occur in darkness, you know they, um, the criminals like to you know tend to attack in darkness because they get an advantage you want to be able to see your aggressor and take action. Target identification is very important. So um, I always suggest carry a flashlight because target identification is one of those things that will help you make sure you're making the right choices in the dark. But as Tom says, the laws don't change between daylight or night, so. Laws do not change. Yeah. All right, is carrying a a smaller secondary pistol a good option if you're able to do so?
1: Always a good option. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I don't yeah. see why you know this is this is a game where look, I'd rather have one really good firearm that that has the proper ammunition and I really know how to use very well. I'd rather have one of those rather than two eh, so-so ones, right. but if you're great with both, they have the same manual of arms, they're both clocks or whatever it might be, then I don't see the harm provided that you are trained with how to draw safely and effectively from both positions and how to employ yep. that force safely effectively from both positions. And
0: the one thing that I will remind everyone is that you need to retain and control all of your weapons. So if you have two guns, and you get into what we would call a ground fight or a physical fight for those guns, you need to be able to retain and control them. So if you're carrying a backup gun, I say put it in a really good retention holster, something with a snap on it or or some other means to help you retain that gun because it's a secondary firearm, it's a secondary right. tool, it might be in a position where you could lose it to somebody else. So, um, And also check your local listings. There are states that do not allow you to carry a backup gun. Their, their state permit, go to USCCA.com laws, the state permit says you may only carry the gun which is assigned to your permit. So take a look at that. I, b- I believe New Mexico is, is really uh, hmm. strange on that.
1: Question, so. so most people about, if just anecdotally, mm-hmm. what percentage of people do you think are carrying on the belt versus someplace else? What's the most common carry position that you see as a trainer?
0: Um, The four o'clock position right here, uh, back on the hip. Um, uh, Appendix position is is growing in popularity. Uh, People like that, it's uh, uh, a little bit faster for the draw and some people claim a little bit easier to defend at the gun in that position. Um, But, and then off body carry, uh, people carrying in purses, you know, or or off body. So if
1: somebody is seriously interested in pursuing Cody's question there, of What would be a great second position to be what's the most common for people who want to carry two firearms? What's the most common setup? A
0: lot of folks are carrying them then in an ankle holster on the offside ankle So if you're if you're right-handed and you want to retrieve that firearm You'll be retrieving it from your left side inside of your left side ankle and that's that's typically where people are carrying a backup gun
1: Gotcha. All right. Well, good to know. All right. So we have Jim. I am present when an intruder enters my house but not obviously armed He starts stealing things. I tell him to stop, call 911. What are my options with the gun? He steals things faster. What should I do? Uh, I'm presuming that the intruder is the one who's not obviously armed. Well, at the end of the day, Jim, keep in mind that these laws do, of course, change with place and time. So one big question is, are you in some sort of castle doctrine state, all right? Um, and i'm not suggesting that if you are that you should shoot the person Um, however at the same time that's going to be a major determining factor to know whether or not if you do for whatever reason shoot that individual if you're going to be spending the rest of your life possibly behind bars if obviously they're paying no mind to you they're focused on property crime they're not posing any kind of physical threat i'm not saying don't shoot to be clear pursuant to your laws but if the laws don't allow it then don't do it if they're stealing stuff Candidly, as a criminal defense attorney and as a former state prosecutor who's been through the system with, with good people who maybe got a little angry, a little frustrated about something that's going on, I'm telling you that if you could talk to them, they'd all be telling you it ain't worth it, all right? And that's the legal way I'd put it. It ain't worth it, all right? And I realize that that can be very frustrating. It can be very unjust, sounding and feeling. But if you knew how bad the system can be and how bad it can rough folks up, um, I think a lot of those, I know a lot of those people would think twice.
0: Yeah, absolutely, if, if you don't have to shoot, don't shoot, because it goes with you for the rest of your life. And you know, the guy's stealing things, and you shoot him, will you feel guilty later on in life? I mean, will you be racked by guilt? I didn't have to kill him, it was just stuff. Or will his family come and sue you? Right. So yeah, you could, right. be, you could be facing a civil suit, um, even if even if you do everything legally, you could be facing a civil suit.
1: And keep in mind, just kind of one more point on Castle Doctrine is that Castle Doctrine creates the legal presumption that you are in reasonable fear of imminent death or great bodily harm. And the reason why I want to just kind of dice that up a little bit is because these are presumptions that you are in reasonable fear. In other words, there's a presumption that you can use deadly force. A prosecutor, if they want to get very aggressive, anytime you hear that P word of presumption, it's followed by an R word, rebuttable. If there's evidence that, for instance, you know, the guy turns right as you're drawing and firing, you wind up shooting him in the back, even though Castle Doctrine implies he's in your living room, you name it, it doesn't mean that, for instance, you are immune to criminal prosecution, at least not necessarily, again, check your local listings. So it's not a license to kill, and I'm certainly not inferring or implying that everybody down the lens here is thinking of his license to kill. I'm just saying this is a lot more of a nuanced situation.
0: Yes, very much so. Um, That's why we have attorneys, so they can work out the nuances. Yeah, and, and believe me, the police will. Yeah. All right, the next one, no name attached to this question because they knew I was gonna yell at this person. Do you shoot to kill? No. You shoot to stop the threat, and you shoot until the threat stops, and then you stop shooting, okay? It is not our intention to kill anybody. It is our intention to stop their aggressive behavior as quickly as possible. Sometimes they die when they get shot, but if shooting them was the only way to stop their aggressive behavior, then it's okay to shoot them. That's how it works. If you go around telling people that you intended to kill someone, you're gonna need to talk to somebody like Tom.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's the wrong way of pursuing this. Any kind of killing or to the degree of the severity that somebody is injured is really entirely secondary and incidental to stopping them. Stopping them is the objection. the objective. Whatever follows that is kind of incidental to that goal.
0: Yeah, and uh, the follow-up question right below, what consequences of wounding versus killing? Um, there, there's really no difference. You're using deadly force, you're using your firearm and you shot someone, okay? The police are going to investigate that as a use of deadly force and they're gonna see if that is justified. And the, the consequences will be different maybe based on what someone is charged with if they didn't do things correctly. Right. I I mean,
1: absolutely. And keep in mind that even if you've only wounded someone, you're still looking at possible attempted homicide charges, some sort of recklessly endangering safety charges. To put this in the context, at least here in Wisconsin, that that means we're talking best case scenario. You're facing felonies that could carry 25 years or more worth of prison time if convicted. So these are very, very serious distinctions. But that's the reason why you're not shooting to wound you're not shooting to kill, you're shooting to stop the threat. Period.
0: Yep. Very well put. Uh can I carry a concealed firearm in a public park or public campsite? Oh, well, so many <laughs> questions.
1: Is this a municipal park? No, is this a local town, city, village park? Is this a county park? Is this a state park? Is this a federal park? Because depending upon where you're at, these could have radically different laws that attach to them. So again, USCA.com forward slash laws. I'm not punting, I'm giving you the answer. Yeah. That's what that is. And
0: we have a whole section in there about federal lands and, and yeah. national parks and stuff like that. So, And we've talked yes. about that
1: here too. Yeah. I know that you and I have had conversations yeah. about
0: and that. And we have 50 different states and each state has more than 50 different counties. So uh, the numbers add up. So you need to check that, uh, that website and take a look closely there. How can I be nice, and nice is in quotes, about letting police know that uh, you would like to be questioned with a lawyer present. Um, uh, no name on this one. you got to give us some names, Max. We, we need to know who these are coming from. Sir or ma'am, if you don't know how to be nice, well, that's an, uh, an entirely different issue. Just be nice. You know? Yes, I'll happily give you a full and complete statement after I speak to my attorney. Is that nice?
1: I always tell people, I mean, I thought it was nice. Thank you know, you. I always sit here next to you. I, I yeah. felt charmed. Um, That's good. I would say that, look, you want to be polite, you want to be respectful about this. There's no reason to be yelling, to be using profanity. Mm-hmm. Don't be the obnoxious person that I assure you law enforcement like Kevin Love of, <laughs> I know my rights, yep, I was you know, say get it. out of town, <laughs> I, I knew he was going to yeah. say it, right? Um, and believe me, I talk to cops, yeah. you know, off duty and so forth. and. Mm-hmm you you are going to tweak them the wrong way and you're not making life easier for you or by the way by extension me or your criminal defense attorney don't go down that road be polite be respectful understand that they're doing their job even if you feel like they're being jerks about it just it is what it is you're not going to improve your hand you're not going to improve your situation or for that matter your legal situation by being a jerk so just be firm be polite be respectful look i'm sorry i'm not going to answer any questions without my attorney president sounds pretty
0: simple What's the difference between force and deadly force? Um, um, You know, the, the tool that you use, as we said before, the intentional use of a firearm or other instrument that would cause a high probability of death. That's deadly force. In the state of Wisconsin, you may use force to stop an unlawful interference with your property. Well, that means you can put your hands on somebody and push them back or something like that. But this is all going to be investigated by... Police officers and the investigators and the district attorney is going to be involved in all of those sorts of things. But force—the difference between force and deadly force—is the implement and the intention that the investigators determine you're using. So. Right.
1: I mean, absolutely. And and keep in mind that you could be using, as we talked about before, um, different tools or even the same tool can be used maybe in different contexts to mean different things. And by that, I'm probably not talking about firearms, which will almost certainly be always construed as deadly force. Yep. Um, and again Almost being an operative word just to kind of squeeze in there. Um, However, you just have to be mindful of the fact that different firearms, different weapons
0: used in different contexts can mean different things. Absolutely. At what distance is a good shoot against a threat? Oh boy. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to try to do this in a lawyerly fashion. Okay. All All right. right? All right. right. I'll get some coffee. Yep. You critique me on this one. The distance which we would call a good shoot, a justifiable shoot, is the distance at which you can reasonably articulate that you are in fear of your life or great bodily harm. So if, some, if you can articulate to the investigator that the person at X distance posed an imminent threat to, of death or great bodily harm, then you can shoot that person. But make sure somebody else is going to be saying, well, no, I didn't think that's really true. He was half a mile away. And, you know, you shot him with your, your deer rifle or something like that. So, um, it, it, but you have to be able to articulate that you have a, a truly, what, what a reasonable person would say is a fear of imminent death or great bodily harm.
1: Yeah, I mean, you kind of crush that, if I'm being honest. Wow. It's, it's, if, you're, if you can articulate, if you can show, keep in mind, you having a subjective impression. In other words, well, this is what I'm saying because this is what I think it. No, 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 no! You're going to need to have some facts and some evidence to back this up to show exactly why it can't be an unreasonable fear. In other words, it has to be reasonable, as articulated, and defined within the rules of evidence as well, right? So, if the guy's charging you and they're, he's 500 yards away with the knife, screaming, you dropping him with your 30 out six, or to be 6.5 Creedmoor, if we want to be all trendy today, um, nice. you know, that's that's probably not going to be good, right? Yeah. That's not going to be, that person's not going to be a threat at 300 yards. The
0: the scenario that they always gave us at the academy was if there's a man standing in the center of the street with a machete saying he's going to kill you and you're 30 feet away, might be a good time to start shooting at that person. Same man, same machete, behind a fence, 100 feet away, saying he's going to kill you, swinging the machete, you can't shoot him. He does not have the opportunity to get to you and and cause a deadly threat. So. Um, distance is not the important factor here. Um, his ability and his intention is the important factor. So, All right. Brian, in a scenario where I'm out shopping in a mall and I hear a commotion and gunfire, I run to intervene and I find the shooter. Police show up as well. What is the best way not to be mistaken as the bad guy? Lay down on the ground, put your hands out, and leave your gun right in front of your face. I, I would not see you as a threat at that point. I
1: mean, this, this is really a question for you at the end of the day, but yeah, yeah. I mean, the um, bad guys are the ones that are standing up waving guns around, right? right. The good guys are the ones crouching and taking cover. Yeah. And of course, that's not an always distinction, but that's, that's yep. a first step at a minimum.
0: Yeah, and then, and then <clears throat> follow every order of that police officer who happens to notice you have a gun. Most of them won't want to shoot you immediately. They will give you some commands and tell you what to do. Do that instantly. Don't try to explain anything. They don't want to hear it. What they want to see is your hands empty and the gun far away from you so you can't grab it and kill anyone else with it. So um, that, that's how you do that, is, is make sure that you do everything you can to appear not to be a threat. Don't have the gun in your hand. Get it down on the ground or get it back in your holster and lay down, just right. get out of the way. Move so. slowly, don't reach for anything in yep. your
1: waistband or pocket. Mm-hmm. This is not the time to pull out your concealed carry license.
0: Yeah. Is it true a flashlight attached to an EDC pistol might present legal issues that can be used against me in the case I use my weapon at night in self-defense?
1: The the legal issue of proper target identification? Yeah, Uh, that you
0: did a good thing to see what you were shooting at?
1: Yeah, I guess, and this is a question asked by John, uh, do you know what he might be asking here?
0: Uh, No, I I don't understand the question because um, pretty much all officers now carry um, weapon lights, you know, their firearms are equipped with lights. Um, we want to be able to see what 's going on in front of us. Target identification is of utmost importance. I have a light on my everyday carry pistol. I am not worried about the fact that if I use that light that light and that pistol in a low light scenario i 'm not worried that somebody is going to say I was being extra aggressive or I mean i don 't understand um, uh, no it 's not true, John. <laughs> Right. And, you know, if if, John,
1: you if you are getting at just modifying pistols and handguns, is this good? Is this bad? And and we've gone down this road before and maybe we should go down it again today. But specifically in reference to a light, I'm I am I am not concerned about that. And don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that law enforcement or particularly a prosecutor may not try to be enterprising and go out and try to make hay of that. That's not what I'm saying. Because at the end of the day, they can try to do virtually anything at the end of the day. I'm much more concerned about where's the evidence and what can you be able to articulate and push back on them in court. Uh, If they're gonna stake their whole case in the fact that you would flashlight, I'm feeling pretty good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, who's, uh, again, no name, Max, come on. Do the courts look differently upon a disabled person who used deadly force versus a person who is not disabled? My wife and I are both disabled veterans, total and permanent who at this point in our lives would probably not be able to avoid some situations. I'll let you go with this one.
1: Sure, well for starters, if you do have some sort of either hard or soft duty to retreat, obviously we're addressing that right there, that okay, retreat, we've escaped that as an option. And obviously even if you are in a state or jurisdiction where there is no duty to retreat, that's still going to be a factor, the fact that perhaps if you're wheelchair-bound or need to walk with a cane, mobility is going to be an issue here. That's going to change the dynamics and the fluidity that you're going to be able to engage in a self-defense a deadly force at that point. Um, but otherwise, at the end of the day, absent the, the duty to retreat and possibly getting into issues of how quickly can you then deploy your weapon um, as far as relating to when can you then use that deadly force, the laws are going to be the same.
0: Yeah, and, and we do understand there's going to be some gray area in there, what we would call victim-subject factors. Um, you can't get away, and if you can't escape safely, obviously, then you need to use force to defend yourself. And if, this, you know, if you're disabled and you can't fight effectively, and this guy is an MMA fighter coming at you, yes, you're able to use more force sooner, but again, can you articulate that you are in reasonable fear of death or great bodily harm? Once you can do that, and if, if that becomes... I was in reasonable fear of death or great bodily harm because my legs don't work and I was in a wheelchair and I couldn't get away and this person was punching me, yep, then you can start, you know, the, right. th- that's when you get to use more force sooner, so.
1: It's gonna be a great scenario, and, and I hate to say it, but if you have somebody who's gonna be unarmed and they're attacking you, those are, those are always gonna be tough cases for everybody, mm-hmm. for you, for the defense attorney, for the cops, for the prosecutor, and ultimately, possibly for the judge and the jury. Um, I'd I'd love to say that there's gonna be bright line rules and within kind of our classroom setting here, so to speak, we can obviously strive to meet how do these facts apply with this particular principle. But at the end of the day, just understand, and and hopefully I'm not breaking any new ground for you here, those are gonna be tough cases and tough calls.
0: All right, Jerry would like to know, is it the law to administer first aid to someone you shoot in your home or business when deadly force had to be used? Jerry points out that he's in Virginia. I know of no specific law requiring you to render aid to someone who just tried to kill you. And that would be the only reason you would be shooting them. Again, we'll go back to this. Reasonable, can you articulate a reasonable fear of death or great bodily harm? If so, you were in such danger that you pulled out your gun and you shot this person and stopped the threat. Why would you want to get close to that person? That you you don't know their condition. Um, Typically, they tell us as law enforcement officer, treat the person to our level of training. Well, I am neither an EMT nor an emergency room physician, so I will treat to my level of training, but as a a private citizen, I don't know of any law that requires you to administer first aid.
1: Right, and I'm certainly unaware of any any such or similar law as well. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind as well, something that, you know, we've touched on in the past, I'll just touch on it here as well. Oftentimes, quite oftentimes, if you're in a robbery situation on the street where, somebody, where you are going to be in, a, in, a, in a, the context of being able to use deadly force because someone's attacking you with a knife, a firearm, whatever it might be, um, that person's probably not alone. There's probably two or three or four of them. Maybe you don't see them right away, but if you're going to go tunnel vision, reholster or put your firearm down worse yet uh, and to try to go render yeah. first aid, even if that person is not going to be putting fire on you or doing anything like that, how do we know what's going on with their buddies? So, obviously, the advantage is this is arguably going to be bolstering the perception that you are not trying to kill them. Um, the disadvantage is you might be killed, and yes. I, that's quite the trade off.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, rendering aid can be as simple as dialing 911 and getting the cavalry and, the, and everybody on the way there. So, move to a position of tactical advantage, take cover, do something, protect yourself. And then call 911 and you're getting help on the way. So, right. Alan says, I've seen on internet training videos CCW carriers step in to assist someone else in need. What are the aftermath legal issues I may face doing this?
1: Uh, potential homicide charges, criminal lawsuits, i.e., criminal prosecutions, civil lawsuits. Um, you're looking at the full boat here. At the end of the day, odds are your state, because to my knowledge, every state does. Um, usdca.com slash laws, has some sort of defensive third-person law. So in other words, if somebody is in fear of imminent death, great bodily harm, you walk into a gas station and the, the attendants being shot at or something like that, if you want to, to return fire or, or put fire on the, what you think is the bad guy, you are gambling that you've got obviously the good guys and the bad guys lined up properly here, which maybe in that scenario mm-hmm. could be reasonably clean cut. Um, maybe less clean cut if God forbid you're in a mall or something like that as to how do you know you're not shooting another concealed carry good guy or something Mm -hmm. like that. But those are the risks that you take and as a result, those are the consequences you could be facing.
0: Yeah, we always uh, use this shark tank analogy. Why would you jump into the shark tank? Is this someone you want to risk your life for? Is this someone you want to risk Mm -hmm. all of your personal possessions for, all of your money, all of your freedom? You could go to jail if you do something wrong if you're going to help a total stranger. Yes, it's good to help people. I understand that, but this is self-defense. Take care of yourself first. Make sure you are safe and you get home to your family. Because understand this, everybody who's carrying a gun right now, they have it in their mind that they're gonna win every fight. That's not true. If you go wading into this fight, you might take a bullet, and then what happens? So. Right, right. All right. John is back again, expanding on the force, deadly force question. What about a show of force? In other words, not upholstering, um, uh, unholstering? Unholstering? upholstering? What kind of gun you got there? A nice uh, corduroy or something like that? <laughs> um, not unholstering your firearm, but showing the threat if they continue. Deadly threat, deadly force is imminent. What are the potential impacts of that? I'll let you handle this one.
1: Well, I mean, show of force. So the first thing I think of, and of course, this is kind of an escalating continuum you go down, is maybe if you lift up your shirt and show somebody that you're armed, that could be considered a show of force. Another one would be maybe you put your, your hand on it, but you don't unholster. The next part, you do unholster, but you're not pointing at anybody. And ultimately, I guess we wind up in a Joe Biden warding shot scenario yeah. or something like that. Uh, at the end of the day, different states of laws, as far as brandishing, as far as intentionally pointing a firearm on another individual, as far as recklessly endangering safety, and of course, everybody's favorite, disorderly conduct. Uh, I have seen individuals here in Wisconsin get charged for disorderly conduct in a scenario where they did a shot into the air. So if we want to call that a warning shot, that could be a scenario. Um, so as far as what could be the potential ramifications of that, that's really going to be a state-specific question. It's obviously going to, a large degree, also be a... Uh, a context-driven question, but keep in mind, somebody, somebody. If you, if you get the EBGBs if you get, you know, that the bad feeling that somebody's about to mug you or something like that, and the guy across the street just sees you lifting up your shirt and showing a firearm to someone, how do you know you're not the one that's going to be called into the police as well? So there's all sorts of different ramifications beyond just criminal law, uh, and I'm not saying necessarily that under certain circumstances this might be the best behavior. Although, frankly, I, I tend to doubt that, and that's certainly where my needle starts on. Mm-hmm. I really don't think so. If you're in a scenario where you're showing somebody your gun, to my way of thinking, that means it's unholstered and out. And maybe I'm not pointing at them. Maybe it's at the low ready. Mm-hmm. What does the trainer say?
0: Yeah, I would. that's where I would want to be with that. I don't want to be, you know, hey, i got a gun over here and, and showing that. Um, if the guy charges you, you're going to be right. in real trouble. I mean, he's going to cover that ground pretty quickly, and you're, right. you you'll be fighting for your gun. And now you're showing everybody else that you have a gun hidden under there as well. Um, I I don't want to, you know. I want to use good, solid verbal commands: stop, get back, you know, leave us alone. And then if it still escalates and you have that reasonable fear, bring the gun out. And you don't right. have you may not have to fire it, but bring the gun out and then immediately call 911 because somebody else is going to be calling 911 as well. If you're so, close
1: enough for them to see what you're doing, that you're lifting up your shirt to show that firearm, you're close enough that they can probably outrun your draw time. Yeah, for a In sudden words, assault. Yeah, so they can get to you before you can draw and put a round on, on, on target there. Uh, that's a bad situation.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. And let's talk a little bit more about warning shots. <clears throat> Don't fire warning yeah, shots, don't. there, that's about it. That's about it. Um, you don't know, uh, really, uh, in most cases, you don't know where that round is going to go. I've had some smart Alec commenters come back and say, well, I pointed it right at the ground and I fired right there. Well, if a piece of the jacket comes off and goes flying and hits somebody and, and you're responsible for that. So if you're going to be firing your gun, fire at your deadly threat and keep firing until the threat stops. Don't be, uh, that's why I looked so silly when you said they fired up in the air. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, that's coming down somewhere and you're, you're mm-hmm. responsible for where that's coming down. So. And I've
1: had cases where guys have shot into the ground too. Yeah. Uh, and, and they get criminally charged. That's what happens. That's mm-hmm. why I'm saying it's a criminal defense attorney, I have had cases, all right? Yeah. And again, I realize the fact that some of you, this may be unsettling, that you want to be able to do that. Look, I completely get it, but at the same time, This is how you wind up a client, so just keep that in mind.
0: All right, Corey wants to go back to our flashlight discussion. Um, Could, using a light on my firearm to verify if the threat is deadly, the result is that the threat is not deadly, can we be charged with brandishing? I need to point out that Bonnie did some very serious digging on the brandishing laws. Mm -hmm. Only six states mention brandishing at all. Everything else falls under some sort of reckless endangerment or reckless activity or something like that, or using firearms. Which so, may not
1: be better, just to be clear. Right. So, so
0: um, I'm going to look at it this way. You pull your gun out and you shine your flashlight, your loaded flashlight, at this person because you thought it was a deadly threat, turned out not to be a deadly threat, and now you're going to get charged with something. Let's call it brandishing. Um, better to be charged in dealing with a brandishing complaint than shooting the wrong person in the dark because you couldn't tell. That's that's the way I'm looking
1: at it. And I don't recall, Corey, if the initial question that we had, going back a few questions now, if that was specifically in a home Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
1: or if that was out in public. But at the end of the day, I mean, do you want to be shooting the wrong person? I mean, Mm -hmm. which is basically kind of, what's the greater threat here from a criminal prosecution sense? And don't get me wrong, neither Kevin or I are endorsing, pointing firearms at people who don't deserve to have firearms pointed at them at the end of the day. these are just the real-life implications and trade-offs of what we're talking about here. Um, It's going to be important to to be mindful of what your equipment can do, what are the limitations of the equipment, and of course that's where we also have the four firearm safety rules, one of them being keep your finger off the trigger until your sights are on target and so forth. But these are scary situations. If you're in your home, you wake up and somebody that is obviously not of your household is barreling through the front door or something like that, uh, I don't think anybody's, anybody's going to begrudge you no. having a flashlight on your firearm.
0: Yeah, and honestly, why don't you have a handheld flashlight? Pull that thing out and point it at somebody, and then you're not pointing the loaded flashlight, the infamous loaded flashlight. And that lights up the target and, and lets you know what's going on. Um, and again, if all you have is the light on your firearm, and you, you perceive an imminent deadly threat, and you draw and light it up, and it's not an imminent deadly threat and then you don't fire, you've done the right thing, immediately call 911 and say, this guy was trying to attack me, but he wasn't a deadly threat. I pointed my gun at him and he ran away. Yeah, you're gonna have some police reports to do and lots of questions to ask. Far better to do that than to shoot the wrong person in the dark.
1: At the end of the day, any time you're pulling out your firearm, you're at risk of criminal charges. And and that's just my professional opinion. Somebody can always accuse you of reckless endangering safety, disorderly conduct, intentionally pointing, you name it, all right? And again, no one up here is saying this is the way it ought to be or is fair. We're just saying here's the system and we've got to work with it as best we can. And sometimes that means choosing the lesser of two evils and it just is what it is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But
1: if that's a major concern, to Kevin's point, yeah, having a backup flashlight is, mm-hmm. is definitely a strong, strong consideration.
0: Yeah. Steven says, do most home invasions happen during the day, not at night? Or don't most home invasions happen during the day? not at night according to statistics probably um you know i know that most burglaries happen during the day and not at yeah. night because burglars go when they think people are not there and maybe it was a burglary that turned into a home invasion because they didn't realize somebody was home or something like that so um i, I don't know what what the question is um, Stephen, um yeah i don't have the stats right here handy about when when they happen but um if it's still home invasion you're still in danger day or night so Alan says, I've also heard it's okay to leave the scene after being involved in a shooting. Is this okay or advised? Um, Before Tom answers this question, Alan, I want to know where you heard that. um, Who gave you that little bit of advice? So go ahead. I mean,
1: look, All right, as as law enforcement is, is often trained in my experience, good guys stay at the scene to file reports and call the police. Now... There's, I would say, one major exception, which is, is it safe to remain at the scene? Absolutely. So there's two different ways it could be safe. Number one, somebody else is shooting there. There's other, there's other things like that going on. Number two, so that's you're being pushed off the scene. Number two is you're trying to get out of the scene. Maybe you're seriously injured and you got to get yourself to the hospital. Maybe your friend or a loved one's seriously injured. Maybe you've got a 10-year-old kid who bolted down you know, the back alley in the city and you got to go get him or her. So look, there's obviously context-driven specific facts that could change this, but by and large, I think that you're gonna put yourself at a presumption that maybe you're not 100% purely the good guy. And again, nobody's Mm. saying that this is the way it ought to be, but this is the perception of, well, why did you flee from the scene or something like that?
0: If you have the ability, dial 911 on your cell phone and tell the dispatcher what you're doing. I'm leaving now because I'm bleeding, or I'm leaving now to take my son to the hospital. Or I need to get out of here because there is a huge crowd and it looks like it's going to be a riot. And, and let somebody know what's going on. Don't just take off running uh, because that is not going to bode well when the police get there. Now they're looking for a guy who shot a guy and ran away. And right. that's that's typically becomes a criminal pursuit then.
1: Right, so, right. Bad things tend to, to beget bad things at that point.
0: Yeah. Howard would love to hear our thoughts about being on a security team in a house of worship that comes under fire by an active shooter. If I am shooting an... Af- active shooter, what are the legal ramifications? Same as if you're shooting a bad guy out on the street, um, with one exception, um, we have what we call the greater danger theory, people will talk about this, and if your failure to act would pose a greater danger to the people around you than your actions, then you can fire without target isolation. But you still have to be facing an imminent deadly threat. So um, that's the, the only little bit of difference that we have in there. Um, yes, if if there's an active shooter and you have the opportunity to shoot back, by all means, do so. The killing continues until the arrival and deployment of the first defensive firearm. So the quicker you can start putting rounds back at this guy, the quicker the killing will stop.
1: And obviously from a courtroom and evidence perspective, in this scenario, it's going to be emphatically clear who the bad guy is, whether or not your, your church, your synagogue, whatever it might be, has uh, active security cameras or anything like that, we're presuming that there's going to be a whole bunch of witnesses who are going to be able to testify to the fact that, yeah, that's the bad guy. You know, Howard here, who's here every Sunday with his, with his, with his family, he's the good guy. So obviously those kind of considerations thankfully become a little bit more black and white, or hopefully a lot more black and white.
0: Yeah, so um, no big changes in your legal ramifications. Mary Jo wants to know, when you make the 911 call to report a self-defense incident, What should you initially say to the dispatcher there to get the police on your way? I'll let you go with this one first.
1: Sure, so Mary Jo, you know, the big things that we're looking at right off the bat is, you know, um, the fact that you're the good guy, that I had to use a firearm in self-defense. If the bad guy's down, great, the bad guy's down. If the bad guy made a way, what's the description of the bad guy as best you can, the direction of the travel, were they armed with a firearm, were they armed with a knife, something like that. That's where I think virtually every reasonable mind in, in this area of law is gonna say, good, okay? Um, now you start to get some divergent opinions after that, because the dispatchers are going to be trained to keep you talking, all right? But keep in mind, you keep talking does two things. Number one, do you wind up saying in the rush of adrenaline, probably the exhaustion, because very often these happen at night, which you probably didn't plan for or anything like that. So the adrenaline, the exhaustion, the confusion, and everything else, do you wind up accidentally saying something that isn't maybe 100% correct? Not on purpose, but just because you're just throwing out information, 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 because that's going to create some possible major hurdles down the line. The other thing, too, is you're on the phone with someone. Okay, are you missing what else is happening around you? Are there other bad guys that could be coming through your home, down the street, whatever else? So I'm not saying that this is what you have to do 100% of the time after this. I think it does turn into a fact-specific situation. Generically speaking, though, I would encourage folks to really limit the details after that. There's going to be a time and place for you to make that statement. But on the scene, in the moment, to the 911 operator is probably not where I would suggest going a deep dive into what everything that just happened.
0: Yeah, I have nothing to add to oh, that. All right. right. All right. Very, We're one, one to well one done. right now. As a concealed carry permit holder, <clears throat> when in conversation with a law enforcement officer after a self-defense incident, should we disclose other items in our possession, such as a knife and not just a firearm? Well, let me tell you something. I'm gonna find those. <laughs> so um, if, if I'm at the scene of a self-defense incident and I am speaking to anyone, before we start talking seriously, I'm gonna pat that person down. And that's my right to do that for my safety and theirs. And I am going to find those items that are on you. I would love to hear about it. I will say, do you got anything on you that I need to know about before I start patting you down? But yeah, we're going to make sure that um, at the scene, pretty much everybody is disarmed. And, and for as much as, as most cops like guns in the Second Amendment and stuff like that, we also like to be the only one with a gun at the scene where bullets have been flying because um, we want to make sure that we go home with the same number of holes we arrived, so.
1: Yes, <laughs>
0: so that, that's my, answer. yes, yeah.
1: they're gonna find it. Yep. And you don't want them to start going down the wrong hole, maybe incorrectly, but going down the wrong hole, well, why didn't you tell me about this?
0: Yeah, so.
1: And for uh, that matter, I'll just add one other thing too. I've had clients who did not disclose it, and they're in the back of the squad car, not handcuffed because they weren't necessarily, you know, just law enforcement's got to put certain people in certain places just to kind of contain what's going on. I had a case where a guy's in the back of a squad car, not handcuffed, and he has this concealed carry firearm. He just pulls it out and puts it on his lap, and then he's like, you know, maybe not a good Probably idea. going to get And then shot. he just reholsters, <laughs> yeah. and he's just kind of waiting for it. Yep. Yeah probably would have been a good idea for him to say something
0: yeah excuse me um before you put me in the car because it can
1: create a danger if they they don't catch it that's probably gonna be worse in a lot of ways
0: absolutely where should you store your gun after defending yourself um well if you get it back after the investigation back in your gun safe or or something like that um obviously you're asking what you should do with your firearm after you've been involved (laughs) in a defensive shooting um in that case make sure you are safe and the police are going to take that weapon as evidence. So make sure you're in a safe place. Keep your gun out and ready to go because you never know if there's going to be another threat. Move to a position of tactical advantage. Get to cover. Do something so that you are safe. And keep your gun out at the ready position in case this person becomes a threat again. And then, don't worry about your gun. Police officers are going to take it.
1: So. Right. I mean, absolutely. And and it, different minds will say reholster versus place on ground or something like that. But if you're safe and the police are just arriving on scene, uh, having that firearm you know, clearly locked open and to the side where you can slowly move away from it following their commands is going to be a good thing and potentially yeah. easier and safer for you rather than having it holstered.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if after calling 911 about your defensive move and hanging up, what should you do if 911 calls back for more info? Well... If you can safely answer the phone, I would say go ahead and answer the phone, but the cops are already gonna be on their way. Um, you would like them to know who they're looking for, bad guy versus good guy. You know, right. I'm the good guy, I'm wearing a green shirt and I have no hair and, and my head's kinda of round. I wanna give them all of those identifying markers so that the cops don't arrive on the scene thinking I'm the bad guy.
1: Right, yeah, absolutely. And and you wanna survive, okay, You. You've been in your defensive move, David, I'm not trying to poke fun of you. Don't know exactly what that means, but you've been in some sort of, I'm gonna presume lethal force encounter. Um, All right, you survived that. Let's survive the second encounter, which is the encounter with law enforcement. So um, maybe giving them a little bit of information about yourself and the fact that the bad guy's down or the bad guy took off. I'm not saying that that's going to then immediately get you out of trouble or out of danger in this particular circumstance, but it's certainly gonna be the best next steps, the best practice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Charles, I'm going to let Tom take this one. Just you read it and go cuz okay. we got um we got like another 2 hours max. We're going to <laughs> go with this.
1: Enthusiastic <laughs> head shaking. Charles, how bad can it really get legally in parentheses if lethal force is used? Uh, bad. <laughs> that, that's, that's the answer. Yeah. Very bad. Very, very, very bad. You could be spending the rest of your life buying bars. You could lose every piece of property in civil lawsuits or criminal restitution or, or forfeit your case. I mean, yeah, it, it could be as bad as you could imagine. I mean, some states have the death penalty. That's bad.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I used to have a, a lieutenant in the Navy who would tell me, they can kill you, but they can't eat you. So that's about how bad it's going <laughs> to get. So Fair enough. Uh, yeah. So... Larry, sleeping in your bedroom, behind your locked bedroom door, you are awakened by your burglar alarm, and someone is attempting to force open your bedroom door. Can you shoot through the door (sighs) at the intruder? You can, your bullets will go through the door, but who's on the other side? Right. Did your teenage child go out and have an underage drinking party and set off the alarm and then try to get into the room to tell you he set off the alarm and you shot through the door and killed your child? Target identification is of utmost importance. Shooting through the door, not a good idea. If, you know, move across the room, somebody kicks in that door, you know for sure they're coming in to do you harm.
1: I mean, at best, that's a gamble, right? And it doesn't even have to be that. Let's say, all right, um, you know that everybody's at home. You went to sleep, everybody's home, you know no one left. Um, All right, the alarm goes off. Now your kids are trying to get into your room for safety. Right. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't even have to be the teenager, uh, you know, drinking fest or anything like that. Was that.
0: Maybe just what I did.
1: Just, you know, a yeah. little little projection came out yeah. there. But, uh, you know, but it, it's true. I mean, you are taking a straight up gamble and that's the only thing
0: we can really say about that. Yeah, I, I would suggest not shooting through barriers at targets you can't identify on the other side. So right. what is the best way for a person to carry concealed that's in a power chair? Um, I'm assuming like a rascal scooter or something like that. The best way for you to carry concealed is in any fashion that allows you to securely carry your gun and rapidly access it. You're going to have to figure out how that works for you. I don't know for certain. I've seen folks in in, uh, traditional non-motorized wheelchairs carrying in a pouch right between their legs. I've seen folks having a pouch on the side. Um, It depends on your specific abilities and mobility. And again, you need to securely have that firearm on you, but also be able to rapidly deploy it.
1: Right, train to it. Whatever you do, train, 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 train. Mm -hmm.
0: What could some ramifications of having to use deadly force in a store or other location that has a sign posted as a gun-free zone?
1: Depends upon the laws. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're in a federal facility, like a post office or something like that, you could be looking at federal felonies, just right there. Um, If you're in a state like, for instance, Wisconsin, and you missed the concealed carry sign as you walk into the mall, or the movie theater, whatever it might be, God forbid, um, you could be looking at something much less than that, maybe non-criminal traffic tickets, in essence, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So that's just check your local listings on laws, uscca.com forward slash laws with an S at the end to figure out what those ramifications may be. Um, generally speaking, beyond those, of course, is somebody may try to say that, well, he's a bad guy because he was carrying in this particular zone. It's something that both you and your lawyer may have to contend with if criminal charges are issued in the shooting case itself, so they're alleging homicide or attempted homicide or recklessly endangering safety. So keep in mind, it may also play an additional factor as to your mens rea. What's your criminal state of mind at the time? That Well, obviously he's a bad guy and he's a rule breaker. Screw all this stuff about them talking about self-defense. He's obviously a bad guy because he was carrying where he shouldn't be. So just keep in mind, those those are going to be loose factors in your case.
0: You're going to work mens rea into every episode. Every talk. Every
1: Every talk. That's right. right.
0: Steve wants to know, what if I'm walking my dog and another dog comes and starts attacking my dog? Do I have the right to shoot that dog to save mine? No. Your dog is property. And I'm sorry, he may be your family friend, but according to the state law, your dog is your property. So you are not facing an imminent deadly threat. Your dog is but your dog is listed in the state law as property. So you can wade in there and you know swing your leash or hit the other dog with a stick or something like that, but you cannot be using deadly force. You cannot be firing shots in town to save your dog from another dog.
1: I mean, unless that other dog's a coyote or something like that, and particularly if you've got some sort of small game hunting license. But keep in mind, we're always still going to be talking about, did you discharge with them you know, 100 feet of a, of a domicile, of a residence? So there's There's Mm -hmm. gonna be all sorts of weird issues that may be peripheral to the fact that maybe I could use force against that. Maybe I could use a firearm to stop that coyote. But maybe there's some sort of town or Municipal ordinance that says you're not allowed to discharge a firearm within limits unless it's hunting season. So Mm -hmm. you could wind up in a really weird situation, really weird place very fast with that. Best case scenario sometimes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're looking at the final question coming up here from (laughs) Bryant, and it's again another aggressive dog question. What if I happens to shoot an aggressive dog? Will there be legal consequences for me? Um, You know, just aggressive or actually doing physical harm? Lots of gray area just in this question right here. Yeah, it's a mean dog. It barks at everybody and charges out to the edge of the yard. I don't think you can shoot it. If it has sunk its teeth into you or a child or something like that, and the only way you can get the dog to stop attacking is to shoot it, then you can probably shoot it. But again, this is going to be a legal quagmire.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is this is why there's lawyers, all right. I mean, that's unfortunately going to be the answer, Bryant. Um, we have to define what's aggressive, right? Um, is it aggressive because it's barking you, or is it aggressive because its 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 teeth are three inches into your into your calf or something like that, right? So that's me one issue. Second issue is look, animal cases, candidly from the inside view from the court system, those are really weird cases because. The types of prosecutors who maybe, if you're in a larger county, are going to be stepping up to prosecute those cases, this is not against those people, but they can be very, very aggressive in taking the dog's Mm -hmm. side on things. Um, I'm not trying to editorialize that as good or bad. I'm telling you, here's what it is. All right. So, as crazy as it may sound, you can get into some very weird and complex felony charges off this kind of stuff very Mm -hmm. quickly. The best thing I could tell you is look, unfortunately, I had to say it, but I hope there's blood involved from your end uh, because that's going to try to make things a lot more black and white. Otherwise, you can see some very, very, very zealous prosecution from some corners of uh, of criminal uh, district attorney's offices when it comes to animal cases. So, and again, no one here is trying to editorialize that. We're not trying to be uh, anti-dogs or pets or anything like that. I'm just focused on telling you here's the way it is there's the way it is.
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan of OC, of pepper spray to stopping dogs. It, it typically stops dogs in their tracks. So mm. I'd much rather use that than uh, um, fire uh, than fire at a dog. Mm. You might miss, you're gonna be in trouble. Right. So, Well, that's it, Tom. What can our USCC members do to help you out? <laughs>
1: well, if you've seen any of the videos before, guys, you know what's coming. Um, something that really allows us to help keeping these videos going with me being here is leaving reviews. So you may have seen a button below you on whatever screen you're at that says Rate Tom or something to that effect. Guys, even if you've left reviews before, I assure you, it's a brand new link. So uh, I'm a member of one of the largest criminal defense firms in the entire state of Wisconsin. We recently started a family law firm called Divergent Family Law. So yes, it is going to the right place. It's specifically going to our Madison, Wisconsin location. Guys, if you could, it's free. It just takes a moment. If you could, please, 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 please click leave a review. It's going to ask you to grade us on five stars. Keep in mind it's the internet. Four out of five is basically a failing grade. If you felt like you got okay content or better, Please take a moment as a result, or I should also let you know, I personally go through and read these, although I've been super busy the last month, so I apologize. I've not uh, left any feedback in October, but I will. Um, I personally leave, uh, I read and review every single one of the, the comments that comes through. Guys, not only for myself, but everybody at the office, thank you, thank you, thank you for leaving these reviews. They tremendously mean a lot to us. Thank you.
0: And because he reads each and every one, let's try to get him like 6,000 that he has to, to look for for the next time. So, That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, I'll take you out to
1: lunch if right. we get 6000 Thank, that, thank right. you yeah. so very yeah. much. Well, Dollar as menu. I
0: tell my therapist, or my therapist tells me, we are out <laughs> of time. Thank you, folks, for being here. This has been your member-only content. If you love this stuff, tell everybody you know to join the USCCA so they can watch member-only content and ask an attorney pretty much any question they want you know, within some <laughs> some legal framework there. (laughs) December's going to be fun. (laughs) So it'll be great. Thanks again for being here, Tom. I really appreciate this. Thanks, Kevin. And I think we did some good work today.
1: See you, everyone.